If you're new, I'm Jamie, and it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bible to the book of Lamentations, chapter 2. Lamentations is a small book towards the middle of your Bible. So I'll give you a couple of minutes to find your way to Lamentations, chapter 2. You'll find it uh, in between the big books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Which, if you're going to be sandwiched anywhere, being sandwiched between Jeremiah and Ezekiel is a good place to be sandwiched. Maybe if it is just a little scary, but still a good place to be. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there is one provided for, the, for you in the pew in front of you, and you will find a little cheat sheet here, uh, it's page 686 of the church Bible, the black one anyway. Give you a second more to find Lamentations 2. And you can take as long as you want. I don't have any meetings after church today, so I can go as long as it takes. Lamentations chapter 2. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read verses 1 all the way down to 10. And then ask for our uh, Lord's help on our time together. And then we'll work our way through 1 to 10. And then we'll unpack the rest of the chapter as we go along. Lamentations chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He is burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes, in the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruin its strongholds, and he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hands of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. 
The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more. And her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. Let's pray. Father, would you come, send your Holy Spirit to us, and give us understanding according to your word, for yours are the words of eternal life. And while we read heavy words, give us hearts that receive them nonetheless. Make us teachable. Give us ears that hear what your Spirit is saying to us today. Amen. Pastor Steve and I are working on a project that um, we trust will help us all become better readers in general, about readers of Scripture in particular, and we'll tell you more about that project when it's ready. But in in preparation for this project, I uh, read recently the book called The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde for the first time. It was amazing. Now, what I'm about to share is going to be a bit of a spoiler alert if you've not read the book, but in my defense, the book is 130 years old, so if you haven't got around to it by now, I don't know what to tell you. I thought about that book a lot while I was preparing for this, um, as I was reading Limitations 2. Dr. Jekyll is a reputable man who has sinful cravings. He devises a way to indulge these sinful cravings without sullying his good reputation. What he does is he develops a potion that when he drinks it, he can become a different person, a tiny, off-putting man called Mr. Hyde. And as Hyde, Jekyll believes that he can do disreputable things with impunity. The trouble comes in the story when his alter ego becomes uncontrollable and takes over, makes Jekyll sick, reclusive, and eventually Jekyll loses his ability to change back from Hyde to Jekyll. He used to have to take the potion to change from Jekyll to Hyde, but now he just changes into Hyde and he can't go back. And then Hyde eventually kills Jekyll. It's a powerful parable of the effects of secret sin, of indulging in sin and addiction. As I said, it's an amazing book. I recommend it to you. 
I thought of this a lot while reading Lamentations 2. I told you last week that the situation which has occasioned this book, the poetry that is Lamentations, was the complete destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 587 BC. And while the events that are described in this chapter and the other chapters is devastating and severe, it is actually a severe mercy from the Lord. It is the least severe means to bring about repentance and restoration of God's people. The Lord is bringing his people through severe, yet momentary suffering to spare them from ultimate and eternal suffering. He's destroying Hyde before Hyde destroys Jekyll. The book of Lamentations is a collection of five poems, a hobbled and tearful walk through the wreckage of Jerusalem. And there are two voices in this poem. The first voice is that of the poet, who speaks sometimes as an objective observer and sometimes as an empathetic and sympathetic partaker of the sufferings. The other voice in the poem is that of a woman called Lady Zion. She's a poetic personification of the city itself. Lamentations chapter 2 has three movements. The first we've just read describes the Lord in his anger. The Lord in his anger, verses 1 to 10. The second movement is verses 11 to 19, which describes the poet in his sympathy. The poet in his sympathy. And then finally, verses 20 to 22 describe the lady in her distress. The lady in her distress. All of that leading to what I trust is the big idea from this chapter, which is this. God is a God of radical love. And so to spare his people ultimate suffering, he will use the least severe means to bring about repentance and to restore them to himself. This is what I take as the big idea in this chapter, that God is a God of radical love. And so to spare his people from ultimate suffering, he will use the least severe means to bring about repentance. And to bring about restoration. We'll keep that slide up for a few minutes so that if you're taking notes, you can write that down. Let's just consider again what we have just read in verses 1 to 10. The Lord in his anger. You may have noticed in the first eight verses of chapter 2, there are 28 verbs attributed to God acting in judgment against his people. Three times in chapter 2, we are told the Lord acts without mercy, without pity. In verse 1, we see the Lord in his anger has set Zion, that's Jerusalem, that's 
that's Judah, his people, under a cloud. Those of you who are good Bible students will immediately recognize the imagery of a cloud. Certainly the first readers would have recognized this. The promise that God made to Noah that he would not destroy the earth with a flood was given to him as a rainbow in a cloud. God led Israel through the wilderness by a cloud. God protected Israel from Egypt by a cloud. The glory of the Lord appears as a cloud. When Moses went up the mountain to receive the law of God, the mountain was covered by a cloud. The Lord descended and spoke to Moses out of a cloud. There was a cloud that covered the mercy seat in the tabernacle. When Solomon dedicated the temple, the very temple that was destroyed in these chapters, God showed up as a cloud. And so a cloud represented God's presence with his people. It was a reaffirmation to them that they were his people. It was the characterization of his goodness to them, his protection of them, his promises to them. But here in Lamentations 2, Lady Zion is under a different kind of cloud, the cloud of the Lord's anger. Now, let's, let's just be honest. Reading verses 1 to 10 is, well, it's difficult. And this may be a bit of a paradigm shift for some of us. In Lamentations chapter 2, our great big God is angry with his people. And he pours out that anger on his people. And that, that may be new to you. If, if you're struggling with this idea that God is a God of love, but, but I see him in anger... Good. It means you're taking the text seriously. Maybe, maybe I can help you. God is infinitely glorious and infinitely good and infinitely holy. And his infinite holiness is what makes him infinitely glorious. And this is an infinite goodness Unless you're a sinner. You see anything which belittles or debases God's infinite glory. Which is what sin does. Demands God's justice. And that makes God's holiness. Dangerous to sinners. You see, when the first man and the first woman turned from God, disparaging, depreciating him, God acted. He wrapped them in the dead skin of animals to cover their nakedness and shame. And he sent them away, barring them, actually, from his holy presence. Not because God was disgusted by them, but because God loved them. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden which was a tragic thing, but it was a severe mercy. It was, to, it was to save them from perishing in the heat of God's holiness. 
And the same sort of thing is happening to God's people in the 6th century B.C. God had chosen a people for himself out of all of the nations of the world, and they were to be his special people. And his presence would dwell among them, and they would live according to his law. And through them, God would tell about his glory to the nations of the world. He would tell them of his plan to redeem sinners from the effects of sin, from the penalty of sin by his grace. But you see, Israel never quite got it. The gravity of sin proved too great for them. And they often turned from God and they often worshipped idols, the make-believe gods of the surrounding nations. And their rebellion against Yahweh was a belittling of His glory, a cheapening of His name, an exploiting of their privilege of being near to Him and being His people. And so with God being so near, their sin against God was an immediate danger to themselves. And so, like any good father, God gave them rules for how to live with him in their midst. And rules are a good thing. God's rules are good. His law is good. Like a a father will put rules around his children using his power tools. Not because he's selfish, not because he's a killjoy, but because a table saw has potential to build great things and has potential to do great damage. And so when Israel would break God's law, he would warn them. He would send individuals called prophets to them. And if they refused the prophets, he would discipline them to wake them up. Not because he hated them, because he loved them. Just like a father who finds his eight-year-old son playing with the table saw without supervision. He disciplines the kid. Not because he doesn't want his son to build something, but because he wants his son to be safe. For years leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, God sent prophets to warn Israel. He He sent them Zephaniah who warned them for decades. And they refused to listen. He sent them Jeremiah, who warned them for decades, and they refused to listen to him. God sent them Habakkuk, and they refused to listen to him. So, God sent Babylon. And the first invasion into Judah was awful, but it was a tremor meant to waken God's people up. A warning shot. Jeremiah stuck around and he kept warning after the first invasion, after the first deportation. And he did this for 10 years. And for 10 years, they rejected him, refused to listen. And so God sent Babylon a second time. More homes were burned. More people carried off into exile. Babylon's second invasion, a little bit louder, a little bit more serious, a little bit more disquieting. It's just like that parent who says, I told you not to ride your bike near the street. I've already told you. Just a little bit louder, a little bit more serious. 
And then 10 more years of warnings from Jeremiah. That's 30 years. And then the Lord added more warnings from a maniac called Ezekiel. But that didn't seem to work either. Judah spent 10 more years ignoring the fire alarm. And so here we are again. Babylon knocking on the doors a third time. And through the hands of their enemies, God himself disciplines his people. He casts them down. He turned them into ruin. He wrecked their defenses. He brought them to dishonor. It was him who lit the fire. He drew the bow and pointed it at his people. He killed all who were delightful in her eyes. He became like her enemy. Did you notice God himself wasted his own temple? He scorned his own altar. God made his people forget the times of celebration which he had commanded them. God disowned his own sanctuary. He did not hold back. He's like that father who sprints after his kid and grabs her off the bicycle before it hits the car. And she may have a sore, some sore ribs, but she's safe. God's discipline is severe, but it is never excessive. If that child keeps getting into the power tools after being warned over and over, after being disciplined over and over, what is a father to do? And it is as if God takes the sledgehammer to his own table saw, tears down his own shop to save his son from ultimate harm. And by the time God is done, verse 9 and 10, Jerusalem is quiet, left smoldering in ruin. She's sitting wordless with her head bowed low, as if in an empty wood shop with no tools that work. This is the Lord in the day of his anger. And God's anger is a severe mercy. It is redemptive. It is restorative. It is righteous. God's anger is not impulsive or unbridled. Yes, it is destructive, but it is not reckless. This is a controlled demolition, the least severe means to bring about the greatest repentance. It is a severe mercy to save Jekyll from Hyde. In verses 11 to 19, the poet speaks now in the first person. Sympathizing with Jerusalem. Let's pick up reading in verse 11. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers. 
Where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of a city. As their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. The poet cries until there are no more tears to cry. His stomach churns. Have you ever wept so bitterly that you become sick to your stomach? That your stomach is sore? Some of you have. That's what the prophet's doing. He cannot stand to look at what he sees. Babies fainting in the streets. Why are they in the streets? Because their homes are burned. They collapse in their mother's arms and she can't do anything for them. Verse 13. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I might comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? The poet begins now to address Lady Zion. He's never seen a suffering like hers, and he finds no way to comfort her. Her ruin is so deep and so wide that she cannot be healed. And you get the sense that the poet, as much as he wants to help her, feels helpless in doing so. Verse 14. Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They've not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. One of the most difficult things about the ministry of the prophet Jeremiah was that Judah refused to listen to him. But at the same time, they, it's not like they weren't listening to anyone. They were listening to prophets, but they were listening to false prophets who were lying to them. False prophets who lied about what their situation was. False prophets who spoke out against Jeremiah, who contradicted the prophet, who said, it's peace, guys, don't you sweat it. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Jeremiah was like a pastor who spent four decades preaching to his congregation, telling them, warning them of the consequences of unrepentant sin, calling them to repent of their, their sin and assuring them of the Lord's mercy. But for decade after decade, they wouldn't listen. They would not only not listen to their preacher, they would tune into other preachers who would call their preacher unloving, a scaremonger, a narrow-minded fundamentalist, a bigot. This is the ministry of the prophet. And here the poet sits among the deadfall of Judah's glory. The result of ignoring the fire alarm that he just kept on pulling. And he is lamenting their sin for listening to false deceptive visions. She gave her ear to false prophets who did not expose her iniquity that her fortunes would be restored. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul foretold of a time when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 
Now, I know it is not fashionable to preach on sin, judgment, hell. But that's not unique to our day. That's the way it has always been. It's never been fashionable to preach on those things. Preaching on gender and sexual purity will cause the church to be labeled as homophobic and transphobic. When we have to do formal church discipline, we're going to be misunderstood by the culture at large. We're likely to be misunderstood even by brothers and sisters in the faith. But we still, we have to preach against sin. We have to preach on judgment. We have to warn Because sin is a treating of that which is most beautiful, most glorious, as commonplace. So we must protest when we see it. Besides that, sin is deadly. Secret sin never stays put. Hide always comes out of hiding. And always kills Jekyll. And so Christian, if you are plagued by some besetting sin, trying to keep it hidden, trying to handle it on your own, let me plead with you to bring it out into the open. It is not safe to keep it hidden. You are not safe keeping it hidden. Feel the gentle tremors under your feet. Listen to the fire alarm of your conscience. Because this is your loving heavenly father's gentle warning. God loves you. And he will use the least severe means to spare you ultimate destruction. The least severe means to kill Hyde. To spare Jekyll. Do not make a treaty with sin. Do not think that you can just get away with it. Do not think that you can handle it on your own. And do not listen to anyone who would diminish the seriousness of sin or relabel it as something less offensive. Is it appreciating artistic beauty? Or is it lust? Is it telling it like it is? Or is it arrogance? Is it wanting to make an impact? Or is it selfish ambition? Is it taking advantage of a loophole? Or is it stealing? We call out sin, not because we love to just point fingers, but because when we can label sin as sin, then we can get that sin to the Savior. We can show you the problem so we can give you the solution. And Christ is the solution. The false prophets may have had Judah's ear, but they cost Judah her life. Pick up reading in verse 15. 
All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss. They gnash their teeth. They cry, we've swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we longed for. Now we have it. We see it. So here her enemies are gloating over her. They're jeering at her, adding insult to her injury. All those who heard of her glory now see her in her shame. And this is the day they've longed for. Finally, it is here. And they boast of her shame and destruction. In verse 17, the poet begins now to instruct Lady Zion. Verse 17, the Lord has done what he has purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord, O walls of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night, at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the liars of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. The poet is admitting here, telling her, This is what the Lord promised would happen. This is what the prophets foretold would happen. God has carried out his word. He has done what he has promised. And then verses 18 and 19, the poet tells the lady Zion to begin pouring out her heart to the Lord. Let the tears flow. Give yourself no rest. Even while you're in the thick of discipline, Call upon God. Bring your complaints to God. He hears you. The very one who has afflicted you, go to him in prayer and ask for help from him. Does this feel counterintuitive? The lady Zion is to cry out to God who was the one who put her in the situation she was in. Well, it shouldn't. Any good father who disciplines his children does this. He reaffirms his love for them, draws near to them. Brothers, if your discipline of your children does not end up in you hugging them, holding them close, and reaffirming your love for them, then you're doing it wrong. Discipline them, yes, and teach them to repent and then comfort their sin with the gospel of God's love. Show them what their heavenly father does when they come to him and say, I'm sorry, I have sinned. Discipline is not punishment. It's discipleship. And this is what the Lord does. He disciples Judah. He disciplines Judah. He doesn't turn his back on them. He invites them to come to him. 
The reason she's in the situation she's in is because she turned from him. And the solution is to turn back to him. That's what the word repent means. Yes, her discipline is severe, but it is the least severe means to bring about her repentance. She would not have listened with less, otherwise he would have used less. There's fire in the basement, and she keeps taking the batteries out of the smoke alarm. So what has he got to do? He's got to get in and wake her up. You're in danger. Well, if you're here with us today and you're not a Christian, you picked the perfect day to come to church. To hear this from Lamentations chapter 2. It is the Lord's mercy to use this chapter To explain to you why you never feel at peace. It is the Lord's mercy to show to you why the relationships in your life keep collapsing. Why you need to turn to pills to help you sleep. Why you need to turn to edibles to help you relax. There's an explanation for your uneasiness and anxiety. And the problem is not with situations out there. You see, modern day prophets have been lying to you. Telling you that you have some kind of external problem and you have an internal solution. If you just believe in yourself, if you just accept yourself, then your external problems will go away. No, friend, that's a lie. You don't have external problems. You have an internal problem. And you have an external solution. Your problem is with your sin, with your desire for self-rule. And the Lord is showing you, as he has done with his people, he will use the least severe means to shake up your life and to draw you to him where you can lay before him your sins, receive full pardon of your sins, and eternal life. This is the radical love of God who would give his own son to bear the penalty of sin on the cross. Who would die and be laid in a grave. Who God would raise from the dead three days later. And all who put their faith and trust in him are united to him. Forgiven of their sins and given the very righteousness of God. And because they have that, they have peace. They have joy. And they have eternal life. Friend, we want that for you. After the service is over today, talk with someone here. Tell them you would like to become a Christian. We'll pray with you. We'll begin meeting with you. We'll tell you more about this merciful God who acts with radical love like that. In the final three verses, Lady Zion speaks and calls upon her Lord to look and see, just like she did in chapter 1. Let's pick up reading in verse 20 down to the end of the chapter. Look, O Lord, and see with whom 
have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. And so you can see in this closing of chapter 2, the lady Zion in her distress, struggling to reconcile the love of God, the covenant faithfulness of God with the suffering she's experienced. She accuses the Lord of being too harsh in his judgments. Look at verse 20, three questions. With whom have you dealt thus? Accusing the Lord of breaking covenant. Should women eat the fruit of their womb? Accusing the Lord of being too harsh. Should priests and prophets be killed in the sanctuary? Accusing the Lord of sacrilege. Is she right in doing this? I don't know. But this is what we do in lament, isn't it? We just ask questions. How long, O oh Lord? Why is this happening? How long are you going to let this go on like this? Are you kidding me? Again? More? Where are you? You know, Jesus quoted a psalm of lament on the cross. Psalm 22. Why have you forsaken me? This is what we do in lament. We ask questions. Now, we need to do so reverently. But ask questions nonetheless. Your Bible is filled with complaints. You just simply need to find them and sign your name at the bottom and send them on up. So ask the questions and then wait in silence. In verses 21 and 22, all she can see is dust and calamity, death and terror. Now, I don't know if you notice this in, in these verses, but there seems to be a bit of distancing of herself from God here. It's my women, my men, whom I raised. You killed them. She calls him the Lord. Not my Lord. This is a woman in pain. And there the second poem ends. Just trails off. And there we are left as readers just 
sitting with her, smoke and ashes, questions hanging with no answer. What do we do with this? What, what, if any, is the application of a text like Lamentations chapter 2? And, and does God still do this? Does he, like, am I in danger? If, does he still act like this? Well, turn with me, if you still have your Bible open, to the last book of the Bible. This is where we'll end our time together. Revelation chapter 3. Now, I wish I had time to read more, but Revelation chapter 3, I think, will be helpful in answering the question, okay, does God still do this? Does He still act like this? We're only going to have time to consider one verse, really, but I'll read from verse 14 down to 19. And just so you know what's going on in in Revelation chapter 2, Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, is through the prophet John, He's giving He's writing these letters. He's giving these instructions to seven different churches spread throughout Asia Minor. And in each one of them, he will commend them for something that they're doing well. And then in other parts of the letter, he'll say, no, you've got to deal with these things. And if you don't deal with these things, I'm coming and I'm going to remove the lampstand from its place. A a kind of apocalyptic way of saying, I'm going to remove your witness to the gospel. You're going to close as a church. There is a church this morning that was many, many people that is closed. And the elders, two of them, are standing outside of that church, turning people away. This morning, not terribly far from here, because of unrepented sin, and perhaps the Lord's lifting the lampstand from its place. So let us read the Lord's instructions to the church at Laodicea, verse 14. Revelation 3, 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, verse 15. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because of you, Because you are lukewarm and you're neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And here's the hope. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and The shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I wish I could unpack that. Verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. So does God act like he did in Lamentations chapter 2? Well, it sure seems like he's acting like that in Laodicea. And this is because God loves his people. And he knows the danger of sin better than we do. 
He knows Mr. Hyde always kills Dr. Jekyll. So in his love and severe mercy for his people, he will use the least severe means to bring about their repentance so they see their sin, so they turn from their sin, so they turn to him for mercy. You see, God's anger over his people is never vindictive. It is always redemptive. Jesus Christ suffered the wrath of God for your sin, dear Christian. He took the penalty. He took the punishment of your sin. He absorbed the sentence in himself. And all that is left in him is God's love and God's favor. See the preciousness of the one who would step in and pull the kid off the bike and let the car hit him instead. Thus, Christian, in discipline, God is not punishing you. Jesus was punished in your place. There's nothing left to punish. His rebuke is discipline, not to drive you away, but to draw you near. And his anger is not leveled against you, it is leveled against anything that would keep you from him. You see that? God's anger is never leveled at you. It's leveled at everything that separates you from Him. So God's re rebuke is corrective. It's meant to set back up what has fallen down. God is a God of radical love. And to spare his people from ultimate suffering, he will use the least severe means to bring about repentance and restoration. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Even in our pain, in your discipline, you are good. We confess, Lord, that we thought too little of holiness and of sin. We've refused to acknowledge the danger. We've tried to convince ourselves that we're in control of these things. And just like Hyde took down Jekyll, we know that unless you intervene, our sin will take us down. So please, please help us. Thank you for reminding us this. And forgive us, oh Lord, forgive us for making little of the thing that put your son on the cross. And give us grace to receive your corrective discipline. To know your love so that we might put off the old man and put on the new, which is being renewed after the image of its creator day by day. Make us like Jesus. Give us joy and happiness. Make us a holy people. For Jesus' praise, amen. If you please stand to your feet. We have a really important thing to do before we end our service today. And that is after a heavy word like this one, we need to go to the word and we need to seek an assurance from the Lord that we have been forgiven of our sins. And the, the, the Bible is filled with these. 
One such one comes from Psalm 103, verse 8, where we read, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love.